Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So tonight we celebrate the Last Supper. We celebrate it as as the Last Supper that Jesus had a Passover meal with His disciples. But it wasn't just last, it was the beginning. It was the beginning of what we call the Lord's Supper. Sacred meal that we celebrate most Sundays together. And as I think about this idea of what's going on here, to be honest, it's it's a little bit strange. I mean, it's kind of odd that as Christians throughout much of our existence. One of the central practices that that mark us as a people is a meal. Such emphasis would be placed on a meal. I mean, so much so that this meal was fought over and debated. Splits, even bloodshed happened concerning the meaning of this meal. And if you look back through the history of the church from the the very church the church's very inception the breaking of bread the lord's supper the eucharist holy communion whatever you want to call it was at the heart of the church's life going back to acts immediately following pentecost when the church was formed through the sending of the holy spirit saint luke says that these these first ch- christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Just a note in this that the breaking of bread was not just synonymous with table fellowship. Actually, it would be redundant because he mentions that they gathered for fellowship. But the breaking of bread was early terminology that was used by the first Christians to to describe the practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so the corporate life of the church from its very inception, from the beginning, its fellowship was marked by the apostles' teaching, which was the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, prayer and the celebration of the Eucharist. That from its very beginning, its corporate worship was marked by word and sacrament, intricately tied together. In our epistle lesson today in 1 Corinthians It's a letter that was written in the mid-50s A.D., before any of the Gospels were written. And yet Paul reminds them of a tradition that he had received the very words of the Lord that would have been familiar to the Corinthians, indicating that this practice and this tradition predates even that time. If you go and look at the early church fathers' writings, the early church writings, they emphasize the importance of the breaking of bread, of the Eucharist. The Didache, which was instruction given to the early church, dated sometime between 80 and 120 A.D. 
So it existed around the time of the last apostle. Notes that whenever the Christians are gathered together to worship on Sunday, that they should celebrate the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, and then provides instructions for how to go about doing that. And now today, you find that some more contemporary expressions of the faith have reduced an emphasis on this meal. Some have abandoned the practice altogether. But I want to note that this was not, and this is not because of some Protestant Catholic thing. Actually, the early reformers treated the Eucharist with the highest of regard and deepest concerns. And their concern was not the frequency of the celebration of communion, nor was it the significance that was given to it. Their concern was that it had become a spectator sport. That it was something that was gazed upon instead of consumed. It was actually the early reformers that argued vehemently for the regular practice and celebration of the Eucharist and the continual and regular participation of the people. That's the question. Why for Christians... Has the Lord's Supper been so important? Why is it so central to our collective life? Now, there's libraries worth of books that have been written describing the Lord's Supper, indicating its significance and meaning. I'm not going to even scratch the surface of that. Said I just went in this Monday, Thursday homily to... To point out one, one, I think, important factor, which is the unitive nature of the Lord's Supper. In our first Corinthians passage, we have Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he's writing these words because there was an issue within the church. In their celebration of the Lord's Supper, they used it as opportunity for division some to show their place and status in society. They were treating the Lord's Supper flippantly. And we see that Paul responds to this by reminding them of the source of the meal. Jesus. By reminding them of the tradition he received, the very words of the Lord that he gave during the Last Supper. These words were words that were spoken during every celebration of the Lord's Supper and later would be called the words of institution. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Firstly, I think that Paul is doing this because he's reminding the Corinthians and reminding us that this meal is significant because it was given to us by Christ himself. 
And in some way, in our celebration of it, we are united to that Last Supper. Though the words might be spoken by a pastor or a priest, we must remember that we are coming to the Lord's table. This is not Grace's table. This is not Ethan's table. It's not Eric's table, Claire's table, Don's table, anybody's table. It's the Lord's table. And we come to receive a meal in which Jesus is the true officiant and host. Hearing the very words of Christ spoken over the bread and wine to each of us, just as he did in the upper room almost 2,000 years ago. And in the words spoken to his disciples in the upper room, Jesus says that the bread he provides is his body given for us, and the cup is the blood of the new covenant, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that in receiving these gifts from Christ, we are to do this in remembrance of him. Now this word right here, remembrance, it's a big word. It's a word that's been fought over a lot by many different sides on the theological spectrum. I'm not going to enter into that debate right now. (laughs) But I do want to note that this concept of remembrance is much richer in the ancient Jewish context than it is today. It wasn't just merely a cognitive bringing to mind something that one had forgotten. I mean, I, I don't think Jesus was saying to his disciples that night, like, all right, listen, I know, like, in case these guys forget in a couple of years, um, I want you to perpetually keep doing this, um, you know, so that then when you do it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Jesus died on a cross. Like, I don't think that's the fullness of what he wanted to happen. Now, actually, the words that he's using here were words that were part of the Passover meal. And as we just read in the Old Testament lesson, that that meal was to be a memorial. The Hebrew word that we translate memorial here carries the idea of an enactment that does bring to mind something of the past, but also carries the idea of an inheritance right. That through it, one lays claim to the realities that are depicted within the memorial. See, for the Jews... Enacting the Passover meal was a, as a memorial of remembrance of what God did united them to the reality that they were re- enacting, binding them to their forefathers in a manner that united them to the blessings and deliverance that the elements of the meal memorialized. By celebrating the feast, they partake of the inheritance that comes from the historic reality conveyed in the memorial feast. Similarly, Jesus took the common elements of the Passover Seder, bread and wine, but he gave them greater significance. No longer uniting God's people to their deliverance from bondage to slavery and the dominion of Pharaoh, but now a greater deliverance. One in which the Exodus pointed toward deliverance from the bondage of sin and the dominion of death. Deliverance that came by way of Jesus' blood spilled as his physical body was pierced and hung on the cross. I want to note that the bread and wine are bread and wine, and they remain bread and wine. 
but in remembrance, receiving them by faith, we are somehow united to that which they represent. The body and blood of Christ. Receiving the very blessings and assured of the inheritance that are bestowed to us through Jesus' atoning and substitutionary death once offered upon the cross. And I do think that this is why immediately after our reading, Paul equates the abuse of the Lord's Supper as an affront to the actual body and blood of Christ. For in their flippant misuse of the Lord's Supper, they were making a mockery of the very reality that by grace through faith, they were united to through this sacrament of our Lord. So in this sacred meal, we are united to its historic source, the Last Supper, which we remember tonight receiving from our Lord as his disciples did that night. And by faith, we are united to Christ, partakers of him being assured of his grace, receiving the blessings bestowed upon us through his body and blood, the blessings purchased through his death as a substitution for our own, so that we might receive the inheritance that is his alone. Finally, through this meal, we are united to each other, So I noted that what was prompting this writing of of Paul was because of the division and the divisiveness that was happening in the celebration of the Eucharist in Corinth. Dividing classes, economic status. He says to them that they they are not eating the Lord's Supper, but they are each eating their own meal says that some go hungry while others get drunk. Now, I've heard numerous sermons, more than I would have liked to have heard, that want to equate this passage as, a, as, as, as Paul's moral outrage to drunkenness. Pointing out, one should not get drunk. <laughs> and Paul tells us, and is against drunkenness, and, I, and I, I will tell you that um, getting plastered at church is not good form. Um, but that's not, that's not his point. He actually says to hearing of that happening, he says, what? Like, are you serious? And then he says, don't you guys have your own houses to eat and drink in? I mean, essentially saying, like, you know what? If you're going to be pompous and just focused upon yourself, consumed with yourself, and you want to party with your boys and have a meal and get drunk, then go do it at home, but not at the Lord's table. No, he was outraged by the division that was happening because it was a complete and utter perversion of what this sacramental meal represents. Christ's body was given and his blood spilt so that being redeemed and united to him, we might be formed into one body, the people of God. Through that, the walls of hostility would be tore down. The old divisions would be removed. The divisions of Jew or Gentile, slave and free, male or female that we might be made one in Christ. As I think about this, and, and as I had mentioned, that, that this idea of, of placing so much emphasis on a meal seems quite odd, especially in our current culture. 
current modern mindset. But after reflecting on it, it's actually profoundly brilliant. Because if we were only left, if we only were centered purely on a teaching or good preaching, which, as I said, was one of the key marks of the church. But if that was all it is, then we could be left isolated alone, separated from one another, scanning books and articles and, and, and cherry-picking sermons that we like so that we can craft our own little personal theology and be, remain completely distant and separated from the other. But a meal, by its very nature forces us together. It forces us to be present in each other's midst, to face one another, to sit beside each other and walk to the same table together. I mean, not as the Corinthians began doing so that we can go and grab some bread and hoard some wine and then go off and partake on our own but instead that we are forced to come to the same table, receiving the same words, sharing the same cup. Well, in our current time, we're not sharing the same cup for good reason. I do hope we get back to that someday. You see, through this sacramental meal, something incredibly countercultural occurs. Something that's almost unheard of in our society today. See, in coming to this meal, both young and old, rich and poor, white collar, blue collar, no collar, redneck or socialite, Republican and Democrat, socialist and libertarian, those whom you know and love, those whom you barely know, and those whom at times you wish you didn't know, all having received the same baptism, coming to the Lord's table to receive by faith the same holy mysteries, the spiritual body and blood of Jesus Christ, being united to Christ, receiving the same blessings and the same assurance. My brothers and sisters, in an age of relentless division, crushing isolation and disorienting displacement, we are greatly blessed to have received from our Lord this blessed sacrament, this unitive meal, of which we remember its foundation tonight, a meal that by faith unites us to the past, unites us to Christ, and unites us to each other, nourishing us and sustaining us as a perpetual, tangible proclamation of Christ's sacrificial death until he comes again. And at that point, we will be seated at the Lord's table, table for another meal. A meal that the Eucharist is a foretaste. The great banquet of the consummated kingdom. A glorious feast that celebrates the full and complete uniting of all things under Christ our King, our Lord, and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They could not take your